is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Back to the curbsider. Hi, yo. <laughs> okay, this is Dr. Watto with uh, my co hosts. <laughs> this is Dr. Paul Williams. It's Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Like, neither one of you guys want to say hi to the audience. Uh. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that ever. I'm not going to start doing that now. Uh, I don't expect you to give a hi, but at least, you know, <laughs> tell them who you are, Paul. Paul, could you tell the audience what we do on this show? Well, sure. We interview experts to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Yes, that's right. And uh, usually we mess around for a couple minutes ahead of time, but we put timestamps in so people can skip those if they want. Don't skip those. Don't skip those. Be a better person. (laughs) Do better, listener. You know who you are. Yes, this and this is yet another episode, a highlights episode. We're we're still at ACP here in New Orleans, and we we spoke with Dr. Alan Dow, who is a returning guest and a wonderful guest. Dr. Alan Dow, MD, MSHA, is the Ruth and Seymour Perlin Professor of Medicine and Health Administration and Director of the Center for Interprofessional Education and Collaborative Care at Virginia Commonwealth University. Under his leadership, the center develops, implements, and studies initiatives in interprofessional education and collaborative practice across seven schools at VCU, the VCU Health System, and the surrounding community. Over 2,000 learners and 100 faculty participate in center programs annually. He is supported in this work with funding from the Josiah H. Macy Jr. Foundation as one of the inaugural class of Macy Faculty Scholars, a highly competitive national program focused on developing the next generation of educational leaders. In addition, he has also been funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. He serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Interprofessional Care and the Journal of Interprofessional Education and Practice. He is a practicing internist. He attended medical school at Washington University and completed residency in internal medicine and health administration at VCU. We are thrilled to have him back on the show. We talked about a whole bunch of different things here. What you're about to hear is some discussion of the human microbiome, uh, an interesting case from the Thieves Market Lecture. We talked about POTS syndrome and some of the interesting physiology there, the su- substance use disorder, some um, and some uh, just medication pearls in general. And I'm probably missing something. Oh, yeah, and Pechacucha, which we'll right. explain what that is during the show. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Alan Dow. Okay, here we are with Dr. Alan Dow. Alan, thank you so much for joining us second year in a row uh, for the ACP talk. My, my pleasure. It's always excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, and this, this time we get to actually be in person and meet you, so this is exciting for us. And you went to a lot of great sessions that you're going to tell us all about, but we just wanted to start off uh, getting, the audience needs to get to know you a little bit. So can you give them like a little, a one-liner about yourself and, and maybe include something about yourself outside of your work as a physician? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm a general internist at VCU. I run our Center for Interprofessional Education and uh, Collaborative Care. And um, I think if I had to talk about something outside of physician, I'd talk about chasing my children around and trying to keep up with them. I have an eight and 10 year old and uh, they're wonderful. My 10 year old is on the brink of being a 
teenager. And yeah. so it's interesting to watch that. Um, and my eight-year-old's just hilarious and mischievous, which is uh, good-hearted, but, but he'll be fun to watch become a teenager too. Any hobbies or things other than hanging out with your kids or when you are hanging out with your kids, anything you're doing for wellness, for your own wellness, since that's such a big theme of this meeting? Well, it's interesting. So I, I actually, um, I, I like jogging, running and listening to podcasts that are outside of medicine uh, as part of what keeps me thinking about things broadly and, and having contact with life outside of medicine. Yeah. How about a recommendation for the audience? Like what's a podcast outside of medicine that they that you think they should listen to? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I, so I, I really like to listen to lots of different kinds of things. So I like some of the policy related things that sort of focuses on health, um, like, uh, like Ezra Klein and things like that, that I, I think are, are interesting. Um, right now I'm working my way through slow burn, which is about Watergate. And it's interesting okay. to sort of hear the history of Watergate and what's going on. It just, you know, it's just a different perspective. Awesome. Yeah. Ezra Klein, I think he started Vox news. Is that, is that right? Correct. And, okay. Yeah. All right. Great recommendations. Thank you. Uh, I'll ask, I think I'm going to change it up. I'm going to ask any, can you tell us about a recent piece of pop culture that you've consumed and enjoyed? Good question. So uh, most of the time I don't um, see a lot of movies or watch a lot of TV or things like that. I'll, I'll mention two things that I that I thought were great. Um, the first was um, there's a, a book, I actually think I might have mentioned it last time I was, I was on and, and may not have made the cut because yeah, we had, had technical some, difficulties. That's my yeah. Fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's a, a book called uh, Evening Land written by a guy named Michael Knight, which is just Southern fiction. It's short stories. And I love short stories because they're great as a busy person. You can read one, put it down, come back in a week and you haven't forgotten where you are. Right. Um, but Evening Land by Michael Knight is just a wonderful book that talks about the human condition and I think helps think about what you're doing. Um, and then the second thing that was just a blast is that if you ever get a chance to see uh, the Flaming Lips in concert, oh, yeah, I'm sure they are just tremendous. And so I saw about a month ago and it, it's just it's an exhilarating and exhausting performance but really just a fun fun time they are so weird but so fun to actually watch that's, <laughs> yeah that's a great yeah, recommendation yeah yeah interesting Stuart. any questions as you're pulling up pictures of the flaming lips <laughs> <laughs> i we we need to have like a live stream of what Stuart does during the show because he is like he I've got like five things open here is your please. adhd public knowledge Stuart? is it okay if i bring that <laughs> sure i think it's quite obvious <laughs> Um, what is the most memorable advice that you've ever received inside or outside of medicine? Hmm. Most memorable advice. Um, I think one thing that I've struggled with is having courage around using my talents on the problems that I see in front of me. So I think I'm pretty good at you know, seeing that there are problems and, and anyone that's listening to the show has a lot of talent because they're interested in health and medicine and they're curious. And, and one of the things I think prevents us from doing as much as we can is having confidence and courage in ourself. And so, you know, there, there's a famous quote about, uh, I think it was Hemingway said you, to, to write, you have to just cut yourself open and bleed on the page, something along that line. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea is true with everything that we do is that you have to just be willing to, to go out there and, and find your voice and, and advocate for the change you want to see. I mean, you guys are a tremendous example of that with how curbsiders has taken off to be really a leading voice in, in medicine. So have courage to stand up. I, kind of I was talking to my wife about this because I think that it, this, there's been a lot of books that that I've read about this and I've just heard it on, on places. The, the Tim Ferriss podcast is one that I listen to to give you a recommendation. He had on the guy, I can't remember his full name, but he does the Moonshot Lab at Google. I think now it's just called X. 
and he was talking about how you really don't want to limit your thinking by like a goal that seems achievable. Like you should challenge yourself to goals that seem impossible and then think about how could we maybe like get there somehow anyway. And, and I think that's like an extreme example of just like this limited thinking that people have. Like they're like, I'm not smart enough. And we talked about the mindset book by Carol Dweck on the show, but I think a lot of people limit their thinking about, and really if you just, you know, putting, putting in the effort and the time you can do amazing things. Yeah. I mean, the more time we spend deciding to do time, do things, the less time we spend actually doing them. <laughs> this uh, Hemingway quote is amazing. It's uh, writing is easy. You just open up a vein and bleed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably bad medical advice though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. So why don't we talk about the human microbiome here? Um, <laughs> Another masterful segue. segue. There was, uh, you went to the human microbiome talk. I didn't make it there. What, what's a take-home point from that one that you can give to the audience? Yeah, that's great. So, so this was a, a new thing for ACP, actually. So I'm part of the planning committee um, for this, this meeting. And uh, a gentleman named Ananda Prasan donated money to sponsor a lecture that would bring the basic science into this meeting, which... Uh, was really exciting. It was great to see how many people were there. It was really well received. Um, and the speaker did a tremendous job um, talking about what we know about the hum- human biome and, and the questions we still have. And so he, he started with C. diff as an example, saying that um, people that have C. diff tend to have less heterogeneity in their microbiome and that things like fecal transplant can restore some of that heterogeneity. And then he connected um, the microbiome and a number of other clinically important outcomes. So showing how variation in the microbiome has an association with uh, metabolism of a bad diet that can lead to cardiovascular disease, with uh, obesity, uh, with drug metabolism. And so he showed that there's all these associations out there that we seem to think may be important. We need to really understand causality still. So there's still a lot of work to be done um, and trying to transfer some things from animal models to human models. And then we really need to get to the point of understanding about therapeutically what that means. But I think it's a it's a topic that's worth learning more about and a topic that it's worth keeping an eye on as we go through our careers over the next five, 10 years. Yeah, just a tremendously popular area right now. I'm I'm very interested in it. But like you said, it's it's such a complex ecosystem that we're still just like sort of just delving into it. And we can cut this out because this is murky waters, but there's that amazing nature review on salt's impact on the gut microflora. Or well, actually not supposed to use flora because they're not the microbiota. And it's that the salt impact on that may actually be why hypertension is that may be part of the pathophysiology of hypertension. So it's yeah. the whole field is fascinating. And we can we can link to that paper. That came out sometime in the past six to twelve months. Yeah, probably. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the exact. You also went to the Thieves Market. And tell us, can you tell the audience, in case they haven't been to ACP, what, what's that lecture about? And then, and then what, what happened? Uh, what was the case that, that you wanted to highlight? Great. Yeah. So this is an annual presentation by a guy named uh, David Scrace, who's the uh, General Medicine Division Chief at University of New Mexico. Great presenter, engaging, witty, um, really worth uh, checking out. And the format is that he presents three cases that are sort of diagnostic dilemmas and goes through the evaluation of the of the patient. And as he's going through the audience via the audience response system and also yelling out diagnoses sort of participates in thinking through the case. So the, the interesting part is to watch uh, a chief complaint and the wide range of things that get yelled out. And then as he gets to the end, it gets narrower and narrower as you include and exclude things. And the person then who gets the, the right answer gets their picture taken and gets a free book from him. And, and 
whatnot. So there's a, there's a little bit of a competitive aspect to it. <laughs> sure. You get immortalized on his website. <laughs> uh, one of the great cases that he presented was a woman who uh, presented with a peripheral neuropathy and also was found in her evaluation to have a megaloblastic anemia. Uh, actually, the woman right next to me said B12 deficiency right in the beginning. So she was she was in the in the ballpark. Uh, but of course, she didn't have B12 deficiency. She ended up having copper deficiency, which reminded me of a patient that I recently saw in the hospital with megaloblastic anemia and neuropathy who had copper deficiency after having a gastric bypass, mm-hmm. and we were we diagnosed that and and treated her for that. Um, what was interesting about this case, uh, because gastric bypass is probably the most common reason we see it these days, um, was that this woman had not had a gastric bypass. Instead. What was going on is that she was using an excessive amount of denture cream, and denture cream is a zinc-containing compound, and so she had had basically zinc toxicity from the overdose of denture cream, <laughs> and as a result, had developed copper deficiency. And the clinician made the diagnosis by walking into the room and looking at her bedside and saying, wow, that's a lot of denture cream you have there. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be observant. Or they could be uh, taking a bunch of diaper cream, zinc oxide, too. <laughs> But probably less likely. Probably not. Probably. That would be a horrible form of pica. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could get a publication out of it, I bet. You could, yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Just don't convince your patient to do that. The, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, there's, and there were a couple sessions you moderated that we wanted to, to highlight here as well. The One of them was the orthostatic outpatient. And we were going to focus more. We we've done we've done episodes on uh, syncope and dizziness, which we can refer the audience to. But why don't you tell us what you thought was interesting from that talk that would be new to our audience? That's great. Yeah, so this was a great session. Um, we had a couple of presenters, but I'm going to focus on one in particular, uh, a guy named Ben Levine, um, who's from uh, UT Southwestern. He's one of the leading exercise physiologists in the in the world. And it's going to work with NASA and Olympians and uh, particularly POTS patients. And so he focused on uh, POTS and the physiology around POTS and uh, compared and contrasted to the work that he's done with astronauts. So astronauts, when they go into space, they're in low gravity and it causes all of these cardiovascular changes, which he's worked with NASA on, on researching. And um, turns out the POTS physiology has some similarity. POTS pathophysiology has some similarity um, in that what happens with the POTS patient is that they become deconditioned. Their left ventricular mass atrophies. So it atrophies about 1% a day. So you can get down about a, a quarter uh, over, over time. Um, and with that, their ventricular cavity shrinks. So they have a lower stroke volume. And so to compensate for the lower stroke volume, they develop tachycardia. And so what we see is the, the postural tachycardia when they stand up, they're trying to increase their stroke volume because they've got to work against gravity more. Um, but really what's, what's going on is that, is that the, um, the, the tachycardia is, is the only thing that keeps that cardiac output up. Fascinating. That's, that's great. And what that's, that's led to with both the astronauts and with the POTS patients is that the, the treatment is actually um, keeping people in shape cardiovascularly. Um, so with POTS patients, because they don't tolerate standing up, because in addition to tachycardia, they get a sympathetic uh, outburst that makes them feel lousy when they stand up, they use actually recumbent cycling to stay to, to become reconditioned. And he's done this um, both at his institution and then in a, a large international study that was recently published as a way of uh, treating most of the POTS patients that he cares for. That sounds a lot better than like waist high compression stockings, which is one of the, <laughs> which is one of the things that just sounds like absolute torture to me, uh, which I know is something anecdotally maybe people have tried for POTS patients. Did he mention any other therapies? 
Well, I think one of the things that he did was he talked about how many of the other things we do don't really seem to work. And right. so, so waist-high compression stockings is a, is a, an SVR problem that you're trying to fix. Um, and that may work for astronauts, mm-hmm. um, where microgravity is the problem, but POTS, that isn't really the, the, um, the defects that's there. Um, other things like beta blockers to, to blunt the, the tachycardia and the sympathetic systems help symptomatically, but they're not treating the underlying condition. And really what you have to do is to get that left ventricular mass increased by exercise. I, I love talking physiology. This was, uh, this was my, my, uh, undergrad major was in physiology and, uh, I, I feel like I've like gotten too far away from talking about that. So I love that you, you brought us that case. There's actually an advocacy support group for POTS called Standing Up to POTS and links to, uh, Dr. Levine's exercise protocol. Okay. Excellent. We will put that in the show notes. <laughs> so there is that. <laughs> As I said, Stuart is all over the internet during these, <laughs> Uh, let's, let's move on multiple. You, you were busy at this, at this yeah. conference. So thank you again for joining us. You were at, so you also did multiple small feedings of the mind and maybe explain what that was. And then we were going to go through, uh, some of the parts of the talks that you heard there. Sure. Yeah. So there are three of us that are on the planning group for that. Um, and we, so we have nine different sessions over, over three larger sessions. Each of the, the little presentations are about a half hour. So 20 minutes of presentation and then 10 minutes of questions. And so they get bundled into one 90 minute session. So my 90 minute session, um, had three different presenters as, as part of it. Um, what we do in planning the session is that we come up with three questions that we think are important for the presenter to answer. So instead of having presenter driven presentations, these are actually driven by us in the planning committee saying, here's the three things we want you to answer that we think are important questions and, you know, find out what, what an expert would say about these different questions. So let's talk about first. There was substance use disorder. I'm I'm using the right terminology. Am I am I not? Yeah, that's great. So one of the big things he said at the beginning was let's get the terminology right because um, we're trying to move away from substance abuse to substance use disorder or substance misuse. Not perfect, but we're working on trying to to figure that out. Yeah. Which so which substances do they focus on? What pearls can you tell us from that part of the talk? Yeah. So one of the questions that we asked him were what uh, uh, medications have potential for abuse that we don't normally think about. So beyond opiates, you know, what else do we need to be, be thinking about? And uh, two in particular I want to pull out. Um, the first is gabapentin. Uh, so gabapentin is used as an adjunct for people that misuse substances. It doesn't in and of itself seem to have misuse potential, but when it's used with opiates, it increases the high um, and also decreases the withdrawal um, symptoms. So that's one of the medicines that we prescribe com- commonly, um, as well as pregalvin that we need to sort of think about, okay, this is something that has some abuse potential, has some street value. And then the second one, which was new to me, was talking about uh, bupropion as, a, um, as an abuse um, or misuse uh, uh, candidate. Um, it's been injected and described as a bad cocaine high. And, um, <laughs> I, it's just one of those things that I, I had not, not thought about as uh, something that would be possible for having misuse. Yeah. Paul, can you, do you remember from our toxicology, you, you said it well, when we were discussing this before, what did the, the dantastic Mr. Toxin Howard tell us about that substance? Right. Yeah. We were talking about this before we started recording and they, it's, they refer to it lovingly as ilbutrin just because the toxicity of, of propion is so miserable. Like it's, it's very challenging to treat. It causes refractory seizures. They become very unstable and there's not a whole lot that you can do for them. So they, as toxicologists only see the worst possible outcomes of, of a medication's adverse effects, they, they absolutely love them. And the, the speaker, Alex Wally, he actually made the point that people that tend to 
abuse bupropion will also co-use gabapentin to prevent the seizures. So that's it's just, that's just <laughs> so sophisticated. <laughs> These people are smart. Uh, they, yeah. Okay, I'm learning a lot here. Let's <laughs> let's, let's. What else can we abuse? Yeah, yeah. Or use go, goes way along with our sports doping. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's chocolate milk, gabapentin, and bupropion. It's like the ultimate. Uh, okay. <laughs> So benzos, uh, you, there was also a, a psychiatry portion to this talking about benzos. What what was the what was the take home point there? Yeah. So the the question that we asked was uh, about treating delirium in the um, the older patient and how we should think about that. And the the key pearl that I got from that was that benzodiazepines aren't as bad as we think they are. I think we're all taught that there's this risk of paradoxical reactions to benzodiazepine, but the presenter. Um, Phil Luber from UT San Antonio um, talked about how really the risk of the paradoxical reaction is pretty small. Um, and if you look in the literature, it's not something that we um, should worry as much about as we do. You can't completely discard it, but we shouldn't worry about it as much as we should. And in fact, if you look across trials of treatment for delirium, usually the rescue medicine, if whatever the medicine is that they're giving fails, is benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, really, you can probably think about benzodiazepines as the gold standard for what we should be doing mm-hmm. for, for treating um, delirium. I hope he was at saying after non-pharmacologic measures and things like that don't work. He's just like, just throw the benzos with the benzos. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, he did emphasize that. I should yeah. definitely say that. You're, you're right. He talked a lot about um, social support and making sure that you had that kind of uh, good nursing care and right. home situation so on and so forth. Yeah. It's in the institution, well, in Cashlack, well, I work at Cashlack, right? Everybody's in, I, I, uh, there's a lot of international medical grads there and there's certain other countries that apparently do a much better job of the non-pharmacologic management of delirium in, in the, in the hospitals that I've worked in, it seems like staffing is a problem. So it's, it's hard to implement non-pharmacologic strategies. You, you really, uh, have to be aggressive about getting people to help you with that. And we've talked about this before. My nursing home days, they also do a better job. If you're using medications for delirium, it's considered a pharmacologic restraint, really. So it's, you know, we view it as delirium sort of reflecting some sort of unmet need. And so if you make sure that they have a glass of water if they need it or if they need toileting or or actually reorient or have things in the room that sort of are familiar to them, like that's those are the first line interventions. And the stuff that we sort of lean on in the inpatient setting is probably not the best stuff for it. Yeah, the the... Global travel that I've done, I think it's interesting to see how there's much more encouragement of families staying with patients, mm-hmm. in, in part because the profession of nursing I don't think is quite as developed in many of the other um, developing nations in the world as it is in, in the developed world. Um, but one of the things that we've seen, you know, in the 18 years of my hospital, we've moved from a, you know, here are the family visiting hours and don't come after you know 9 p.m. to saying, okay, a family member can stay because they're recognized mm-hmm. as really integral parts of the care team. Yeah. Did you see there there was a study that came out sometime in the past few months? I'll dig it up when we when we post this, but it was they were showing like FaceTime video, one minute FaceTime video to patients who are at risk for delirium and showed some some benefit there. Um, just having like the familiar face of family if distance was an issue. I thought that was a really novel, interesting way way to to do it. I think someone had sent that out on Twitter. So it's fascinating. Did, did he talk any, about non benzodiazepine therapy for uh, delirium at all? He did. I mean, he went through the the medicines we would think about. So the um, the antipsychotics. I mean, that's a bad name because we use them for so much more than psychosis. But right. but both the typical and and, and atypical, um, and how um, you have to also think about formulary constraints about whether you're thinking about a risperidone or Abilify or or what your options are. And they all have, I think, a 
place. Uh, it's, it's that it's hard to tell what's better than another. Um, and that benzodiazepines are, are just as first line as everything else. The last thing we had on the agenda was to talk about Pecha Kucha. And again, I think you're going to have to explain what that is to the audience and then tell us, tell us what was your favorite part of that talk. Yeah, so this is the second year that Pecha Kucha has been going on at ACP. So Pecha Kucha came out of the uh, field of architecture um, with the idea that architects could talk forever and ever about you know one little piece of a building, one little feature. And so they said, okay, how can we get them to focus and limit what they're talking about? So Pecha Kucha, um, the presenter has 20 slides with 20 seconds per slide. And the slide automatically advances at the end of 20 seconds. So you have to keep on track. You can't click forward or click backwards. It's, you know, it, when it goes, it goes. And so it's like jumping on a train. And Did anyone just fall apart on yeah. stage? and be like, I give up. That'd like, be a great way to just panic shame. attack with me in public. I'm- yeah, well, so far in two years, we've had no one no one crying or sniveling in, in, the, in the back. But I will say, if you go over the allotted time, the uh, moderator this year was Mark Kahn, who's the... Um, is the uh, course director for the overall scientific program. He had a gong that he would bang to sort of <laughs> stop the person. Yeah. Oh, I wish I was there for that. Yeah. So there were, there were five presentations. These were about six and a half minutes long and all five were, were excellent. Um, but there's one in particular that I want to, I want to pull out. Um, it was by a, a presenter named uh, Sal Maggioni, who's presented ACP many times. He does uh, art and medicine type of presentations, always very well received, um, humanistic and funny and just a wonderful, wonderful presenter. And so he did a Pecha Kucha around Leonardo da Vinci and went through the characteristics of Leonardo da Vinci that made him such, such an exceptional person, his, uh, his creativity, his nuance, his humanism. And as he went through it, though he was talking about Leonardo, he was linking it back to the contemporary physician and contrasting what made Leonardo so great with the things that make it hard to be a Leonardo in our contemporary health system. So we talked about the electronic health record, which has really been a, a punching bag at this meeting in terms of <laughs> things that are that are driving people nuts. Um, he talked about with learners you using uh, multiple choice tests as a way of having them try to think about the one right answer when really we want to think about nuance and flexibility and creativity and said, you know, really what we need to be doing is thinking about how can we be a Leonardo in the setting of healthcare that we have in front of us. Yeah, fantastic. I, I, I just love that message. And I, I think we can maybe, maybe we can point people to the link. Uh, they, they might be able to watch that on the ACP website. Uh, maybe by the time this comes out, it'll be out on YouTube as well. But we'll try to get people uh, access to that. Alan, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, this, this might become a yearly thing if, if you're into it. Uh, we, I really like having you on the show. I think I can commit to that. Okay. It's a little bit of a step, but and I think I think next year we're in Philly, right? Yeah, we're so, in Philly. So it's a home game for you. It is. So my schedule's open, so if you need me to collapse on stage for the, the that talk, I'm happy to. Yeah. It's good. It's I would good. love to see Paul do that. <laughs> There's so many opportunities to see me collapse. It doesn't have to be this talk. <laughs> Don't you have pots, too? This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up to receive show notes emailed to you weekly at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge, but we need your input. So subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good morning. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Goodbye. Good night. And thank you to our producers, our our producer, videographer, Dr. Christopher Chu, and our in-studio producer, Hannah Abrams, who was furiously tweeting throughout, (laughs) throughout this session. And thank you to all our correspondents who help out making, uh, producing the show and writing the show notes. Uh, Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram. Chris Chumanchu is on Facebook. And Hannah needs a nickname. Abram is on Twitter. Sometimes we've like ended on like this just downer and I'm like, we got to, we got to figure some way to end on a good note here, guys. Record high overdoses. And that's a wrap. (laughs)